Welcome to the Cybersecurity TLDR show, where we save you time by providing you the too long didn't read summary of cybersecurity topics and news. You can find us on YouTube with video and all the popular podcasting platforms for audio on the go. Now let's get over to your host, John Good. Hello, 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 and welcome. This is your Threat Intel Briefing for the week of July 24th, 2022 through July 30th, 2022. I am your host, John Good. I want to welcome you on this Saturday. If you're watching on YouTube and you're live with me, make sure to uh, leave a like, comment, subscribe, and also uh, let's interact in the chat. If you're watching this on replay, pretty much the same goes. Like, comment, and subscribe to the channel. That way you don't miss future content. If you're listening on podcasting platform, because these are all available on all the, uh, the popular podcasting platforms, so the uh, Spotify, the iTunes, all that stuff, make sure to subscribe and leave me a review. Let me know how you like the show and if you think there's anything that we could do better uh, or change. I'm always looking for uh, ways to improve the show and all the content that I put out there. So without further ado, uh, and also too, before we get started, uh, it ch- check out the description or the, the show notes, and there will be a link to the show notes. So I'll include all these articles that we cover, and then you can look at them a little bit further if you want to, if you're more interested and you want to see more of the deeper details. So without further ado... Let's go ahead and get started and get into the first article here. So uh, the very first, first article is uh, FBI investigation determined Chinese-made Huawei equipment could disrupt U.S. nuclear arsenal communications. So the article says, on paper, it looked like a fantastic deal. In 2017, the Chinese government was offering to spend $100 million to build an ornate Chinese garden at the National uh, Arbit- Arbitum in Washington, D.C., complete with temples, pavilions, and a 70-foot white pagoda, the project thrilled local officials who uh, hoped it would attract thousands of tourists every year. So kind of typical stuff, right? Washington, D.C., very, very big tourist attraction spot in the U.S. But when U.S. counterintelligence officials began digging into the details, they found numerous red flags. The The pagoda, they noted, would have been strategically placed on one of the highest points in Washington, D.C., just two miles from the U.S. Capitol, a perfect spot for signal intelligence collection. Multiple sources familiar with the episode told CNN. So one of the things you have to be careful with, just in general, right? And if if you're in cybersecurity and you're working in this field and you go for like the CISSP, the CISP, that certification, you know, one of the things that it talks about is uh, physical security, right? So what kind of things are around your physical location of your work site? Are there other buildings? Are there uh, satellites? Are there, you know, other things that could impact the security of your organization? Obviously, if you're in a very secure kind of organization, maybe you don't want a lot of buildings around you where people can see in. Maybe then that affects, you know, the kind of construction that you have on your building, the windows that you have and all this stuff. And specifically in Washington, D.C., you know, it's going to be pretty, uh, pretty strict on the things that are even allowed in there. Right. Because that's that's the capital of the U.S. And, you know, there's just a lot of restrictions and requirements and things like that that can be imposed if you want to move into there or build a building or build something, right? So that's kind of 
along the lines of this. So also alarming that the, uh, was that the Chinese officials wanted to build a pagoda with materials shipped to the U.S. in diplomatic pouches, which U.S. customs officials are barred from examining the sources set. So especially when there's like diplomatic kind of things, you know, there, there's certain restrictions, right? There's certain things that, um, that, you, that countries agree to not do or to do because they want to keep up those relations, right? And so if you're shipping, you know, materials and you label them as diplomatic materials, ideally you don't want them to be searched because it's, you know, it's in good faith, right? But then, you know, then they're stuffing this other stuff in there that is not, you know, in good faith, right? So, you know, that's obviously very, very suspect. Um, let's see here. What else? Since at least 2017, federal officials have investigated Chinese land purchases. Near critical infrastructure shut down a high-profile regional consulate believed by the U.S. government to be a hotbed of Chinese spies and stonewalled that uh, what they saw as clear efforts to plant listening devices near sensitive military and government facilities. So, you know, if you're going to do uh, uh, intelligence gathering, you know, you're going to try to get really close to your target. And proximity matters, even in cybersecurity, right? Proximity matters. Physical access matters. And the closer that you are in a lot of cases with a lot of this stuff, uh, the closer you are to physical access, you know, the more advantage you have. Specifically in this kind of situation, think about this. If you could use like radar jammers or intercept communications because you're just physically so close, you know, that's a real serious concern for sure. Among the most alarming things that the FBI uncovered pertains to the Chinese-made Huawei equipment atop cell towers near U.S. military bases in the rural Midwest. According to multiple sources familiar with the matter, the FBI determined that the equipment was capable of capturing and disrupting highly restrictive, uh, restricted Defense Department communications, including those used by U.S. Strategic Command, which oversees the country's nuclear weapons. And you can see that in this situation, just like I just talked about. You know, using cell towers, so these Huawei, uh, Huawei pieces of equipment, and being able to inter uh, intercept or disrupt these communication signals. So, especially for from a government standpoint, right? That's a serious issue because, you know, bases they they have communications that they need to have ongoing, and uh, specifically, this one says the country's nuclear weapons. You know, that's obviously a serious issue because that just escalates the uh the actual issue instead of just like standard kind of communications but yeah especially around like bases and stuff it gets even more restrictive uh because you know people are on more alert especially if you're a foreign government and you're trying to do some of this stuff so uh, i just thought this this article was interesting in general but it does bring up the idea of physical security and how that should be a concern with your organization right all right so next article google fire software engineer who claimed AI bot was sentient? Sentient. Uh, sentient. <laughs> Last month, Alphabet's Inc. Google put a software engineer, Blake Lamone, on paid administrative leave when he published a paper uh, claiming that the company's controversial artificial intelligence AI model, Lambda, language model for dialogue applications, had become sentient and was a self aware person. So, this is basically the idea of a true learning computer, right? Like that's the idea. So um, this person was saying that 
this AI uh, algorithm or AI system could learn and then actually make decisions and understand what information was being processed by it. So that's the big deal. That's why this person was kind of raising the alarms because supposedly this is true. Google on Friday and publicly announced that it fired uh, Lamone for violating the uh, company's confidentiality policy. It highlighted that the engineer's claims were wholly unfounded and that the company worked with him for many months to clarify this. So it's regrettable that despite lengthy engagement on the topic, Blake still chose to uh, persistently violate clear employment and data security policies that include the need to safeguard product information, Google spokesperson uh, Brian Gabriel said in a statement on Friday. So if you haven't been following this, it's really interesting and I would highly recommend you check it out because it's definitely relevant, right? But uh, this person had been going on interviews and things like that and really talking about it. And, you know, in cybersecurity, one of the things that we really talk about a lot, and again, this is very tied to things like the CISSP and some of these best practices, is that, you know, you want to have policies in place as far as like NDAs, so non-disclosure agreements, what people can actually disclose to other companies or uh, the public and all this kind of stuff, right? and confidentiality policies and all this stuff, right? They're all kind of, you know, related. So we talk a lot about a lot about that and having those in place and ways to, um, you know, basically actions that the company can take if employees start breaking uh, or violating these policies. And, you know, something like this, the, the thing that really comes to mind is, you know, especially a company like Google, right? Where Google is under a lot of scrutiny constantly. They're always under scrutiny by the public, uh, social media platforms, like all this stuff. And, you know, something like this, um, you know, if a company can get to that point where they can really create something, you know, really groundbreaking as far as technology goes, one of the issues, especially with something like this, is that, you know, obviously there's going to be a lot of alarms raised if you can create this. And especially when you early you create it in the early phases, you know, it's not going to be perfect, right? Like, do you want the public knowing that you have this kind of technology when you haven't had a chance to really refine it? It's like, you know, spilling the beans on your most cutting edge kind of technology and, you know, really giving your competition the heads up, giving the public the heads up without really a lot of time to, to refine it. And especially with these kind of companies, these companies, you know, anything around this kind of stuff on social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram and Google and Twitter and all this stuff. I mean, they're just, they're always on Capitol Hill and having to report to the government. So, um, you know, it, it's very interesting. And obviously every once in a while we have people that see themselves as kind of, um, you know, like the do-gooders, right? Like they, they're like, no, this is like, this is crazy. I'm going to release this and, you know, of varying issues. But, um, you know, uh, this also reminds me kind of, of, um, there was, uh, Edward Snowden, right? Like that was another kind of similar, um, similar thing. I mean, obviously a different situation, but, um, you know, he, he kind of claimed the same thing, right? Like I, I'm doing this for the better. I'm, I'm telling people about this for the better. 
Um, so I'm not saying, you know, I'm not going there on the right or wrong and all this stuff, right? But, you know, it's a similar kind of issue within your companies. You're going to have people that are like this and that will, uh, will steal data. They will try to exfiltrate it. Um, you know, they will tell people about it and all this stuff, you know, happens. And that's why things like, you know, least privilege, uh, so only allowing them to have access, people that have access to what they need to do their job and nothing more, um, having policies in place, having separation of duties. Uh, so two people can't do all the, all the actions that are critical, you know, all this stuff matters and helps minimize these kind of, um, these kind of situations from, you know, from escalating or somebody releasing your entire code base or something. Right. So. You know, that's a very relevant thing that will always be relevant and, you know, definitely good for you to know about. Uh, Sinners introduced bipartisan quantum computing cybersecurity bill. So if you're not familiar with quantum computing, that is becoming more and more a thing all the time. And uh, basically, it's very high-powered computing. That's basically the idea. Um, bipartisan bill that seeks to strengthen national security against quantum computing threats has been introduced in the U.S. Senate. Uh, Senate. The Quantum Computing Cybersecurity Preparedness Act addresses federal agencies' preparedness for quantum computing and requires them to adopt proper defenses against quantum computing-enabled data breaches. So again, quantum computing is just massive computing power, right? Just that, a lot of power. And why that matters is because, for example, think about like encryption or passwords. With passwords, Typically, right, the longer and more complex that a password is, the more secure it is because it takes longer time to break. Okay, well, if you have quantum computing, and we talked about this um, several weeks ago, there was an article just about uh, advancements on being able to crack passwords and things like that with quantum computing. But um, if you can take a long password, like a, you know, a 20 character password, right, and let's say and I don't know the exact numbers on this, so I'm just going to throw out you know, a number to give you a comparison. But let's say a 20-character password that's secure would take you uh, 20 years. 20 years to crack, right? Okay, whatever. But if you're using quantum computing, that might take like a day or like a week or something, right? Like it's very, very drastic. And um, you know, certainly that going into the future is going to be a serious issue. And then encryption, you know, obviously the same idea, the more you can speed it up, the faster you can break it. So you need protections that are more and more secure. The bill underlines the needs to uh, migrate federal agencies, information technology systems to post quantum cryptography and maintains that the office of management and budget OMB will supervise the uh, migration process. The rapid progress of uh, quantum computing suggests that potential for adversaries of the United States to steal encrypted data today using cl uh, classical computers and wait until significantly powered quantum systems are available to decrypt it, the bill reads. So the idea is that uh, somebody, right, like an attacker, can go in and steal information. It could be encrypted. Doesn't matter, right? It's okay if it's encrypted. So I take, you take all this encrypted data, like 100 gigs or something like that, and then in 10 years or five years or something, quantum computing evolves enough to where you can use it. And then you start launching it against that. 
Well, chances are that information is probably still relevant. And uh, even if, let's say, uh, you put a timeline on data of like 50 years or something, right? Like that, that data will be obsolete in 50 years. Like that's the idea, right? Well, if I have that data and I have access to quantum computing and I can crack that data in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, whatever, right? Like I can shave uh, a decent amount of time off of that. That's still going to put me in a better situation and put me in, you know, it's going to give you less advantage uh, because I, I can, you know, shave time off of that period. So, you know, it's definitely a serious concern. Per the, the bill, OMB will also guide federal agencies for one year after the NIST, National Institute of Standards and Technologies, issues post-quantum crypto cryptography standards and will keep Congress informed on the status of fed federal agencies' migration to post-quantum uh, cryptography standards and on post-quantum cryptography risk, defenses, and necessary funding. So this is not going to necessarily be something today, but this will be something, you know, five, 10, 20 years, uh, you know, in the future. So if you're watching this right now and you're just getting into cybersecurity or you still have, you know, 20, 30 years of a career left, you know, this is going to impact you at some point, right? Like this is going to be a thing. So definitely something to have on your radar, but maybe not necessarily, you know, today, but it is going to be something that comes up. Microsoft adds default protections against RDP brute force attacks in Windows 11. Microsoft is now taking steps to prevent remote desktop protocol RDP brute force attacks as part of the latest builds for Windows 11 operating systems in an attempt to raise the security baseline to meet the evolving threat landscape. To that end, the default policy for Windows 11 builds, particularly the Insider Preview builds uh, 22.528.1000 and newer, will automatically lock accounts for 10 minutes and 10 invalid sign-in attempts. So one of the ways to stop brute force attacks in general is to uh, limit the amount of attempts that you have and then put a lockout in place, right? You're extending that period that it's going to take. And then, you know, ideally you want it passed when somebody has to reset their password. <clears throat> so uh, pass when they reset their password, because then that kind of, you know, it negates it, right? Unless you have quantum computing. <laughs> Uh, when Win 11 builds now have a default account lockout policy to migrate, uh, mitigate RDP and other brute force password vectors, right? Um, let's see here. This technique is very commonly used in human operated ransomware and other attacks. The control will make brute forcing much harder, which is awesome. So yeah, like these kind of settings, these are not enabled by default. So just so you know. Uh, these are things that you have to actually go in and set typically, and now they're going to be by default enabled, which is great, right? Because a lot of these settings, you know, they, they need to be enabled, right? Like they need to be enabled. And if you're not going in there and actually enabling them, well, then you're setting yourself up for an attack or brute force attack. And, you know, so it's good. That they're going to be enabled. Uh, and they won't like slow down business because they're enabled by default. They are pretty standard settings. Lockbit, which is the mo one of the most active ransomware gangs in 2022, is known to often rely on RDP for initial foothold and follow-on activities. Other families seen using the same mechanism include Conti, which is another one, 
Hive, another very popular one, PYSA, Crisis, Sam Sam, and Dharma. So, you know, again, uh, steps towards mitigating things like ransomware and some of these brute force attacks. So good on Microsoft. Uh, we had another article, hackers opting new attack method after Microsoft blocked macros by default. So kind of a follow-on here. Uh, with Microsoft taking steps to block Excel 4.0, XLM, XL4, uh, and Visual Basic for applications, VBA macros, by default across Office apps, malicious actors are responding by refining their techniques, uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures, their TTPs. The use of VBA and XL4 macros decreased approximately 66% from October 21 through June 2022, Proofpoint said in a report that they shared with Hacker News, calling it one of the largest email threat landscape shifts in recent history. So if you're not familiar with what macros are, uh, basically think of when you open up a, a Microsoft Office document and a macro is basically recorded actions. So if I turn a macro recording on, it's going to record what I do, what actions I take. So if I, um, if I open up this Excel document, I hide these two columns and I make this one row, you know, much bigger Then it's going to, you know, do those actions again when I run that macro. Unfortunately, macros are very, um, very common in vulnerabilities and exploits and used by attackers, right? Like they, they get you to do certain thing. Uh, they get you to, you know, execute the macro and then they will take certain actions. Very common. Uh, so in its place, adversaries are increasingly pivoting away from macro-enabled documents to other alternatives, including container files such as ISO and RAR, as well as Windows shortcut link files and campaigns to distribute malware. So we've seen this in other articles that we've talked about on this episode or on this show. Um, there, there's been you know Windows shortcut link uh, exploits and you know other things that kind of trigger a lot of this back uh, uh, behind the scenes activity. So if I you know run a Windows shortcut link and then you execute a PowerShell script or something, right? Um, so a lot of this stuff is starting to surface and, you know, again, uh, macros are pretty, um, unsophisticated just as far as like they're, they're very common, right? Commonplace. And, um, you know, people know about them, so it's not, it's not, uh, out of the, you know, out, uh, it's not strange that attackers are kind of migrating away from this. So. Uh, next article, T-Mobile to cough up $500 million over 2021 data breach. So just under a year ago, the U.S. Arms, uh, uh, arm of telecom giants T-Mobile admitted to a data breach after personal, personal information about its customers was offered for sale on an underground form. The data included social security numbers, phone numbers, names, physical addresses, uh, unique IMEI numbers, which are related to the phones and uh, driver's license information. The seller said, so when you go to a service like T-Mobile or something, typically, especially with like the postpaid service, like the, the monthly service, not the prepaid service where you pay in advance, um, this, the postpaid is you pay uh, in arrear. So you pay for what you previously used, right? Um, but they, they do things like credit checks and they take a bunch of this information. So they house a lot of information. Uh, and that's not just T-Mobile, that's you know all these providers. Reuters reports that T-Mobile has agreed in a U.S. federal court in Missouri to make $350 million available for what are known as a, uh, in America as a class action settlement. 
So basically, that's when a lot of people get together, they sue some big company, and the lawyers make most of the money. That's the idea, right? Um, in return, T-Mobile doesn't have to admit guilt. So uh, this isn't a fine or a criminal penalty. It's a civil agreement to settle the matter. Settlement needs approval from the court, something that's expected to happen by the end of 2022. So T-Mobile, this is a big issue. This was in the news a lot. They also tried to hire a third-party company to go acquire all their data from these hackers. They, they paid them, which was in turn to go pay this, uh, the hacker group so that they were kind of you know, behind the scenes and off the, off the charts, right? Uh, it's a unique way, uh, but the whole idea was that they were going to pay these attackers and they weren't going to release the information. Well, you know, that's obviously always a bad idea. Um, I'm not sure. I'm sure it sounded great, like when they were thinking about it, but, um, you know, obviously <laughs> hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Probably not a great idea to go do if you get attacked by ransomware or attacked by hackers and they take a bunch of data. Just saying. So, um, yeah, that, that's a big one, right? But 350 million, that's, uh, or 500 million, whichever number it actually ends up being. I mean, they, they're going to make 350 million available. I mean, that's probably not a huge chunk of change to them in the grand scheme of things, but, um, you know, reputation matters. These kind of attacks and how you respond to them does matter, believe it or not. And that will affect your reputation going forward. You know, so maybe you should take a second and make sure you, you know, that you take the correct actions. Kind of plan it out. Do a, um, you know, do a, uh, if I take this action, what are the results going to be? What are the pros and cons of that, right? So, yeah. Uh, poor training and communications hindering cybersecurity efforts. Poor training is hindering companies' ability to protect themselves from cybersecurity risks, according to our report from email security company Tessian. Three in four companies in the UK and US have experienced a security incident in the last year, said the report titled, How Security Cultures Impact Employee Behaviors. Uh, poor cybersecurity awareness programs and internal communications are primarily to blame. Part of the problem is that employees don't understand their role, their role in protecting the company. Almost half, 45% of all workers said that they don't, uh, didn't know who to report a security incident to, and 30% feel that they had a role in helping us, didn't feel they had a role in helping cybersecurity at all. E, poor training and awareness exercises are a contributing factor while 85% of employees participate in security awareness programs. Almost two-thirds, 64%, don't pay full attention during the training. In addition, over a third, 36%, Consider the security training boring, the report found. So if you've ever taken a security awareness training, you know, a lot of cases, they are really, really boring and dry and they don't, you know, force you to interact at all. Um, you know, how can you, how can you force interaction? Well, you know, making people have to click on things, making people actually have to do like knowledge checks or quizzes on it. I mean, you know, I, I think about this and I think about some of the old like health kind of videos that you would have to do in like school and stuff. So like, um, you know, I mean, at this point, you know, it's kind of different, but like think about sometimes if you see on TV, like some of like the older stuff. So like if you've ever seen the show, like the wonder years, it's kind of an older show, but, um, 
you know, they, they would watch like sex ed videos. Right. And these videos were made, you know, older, kind of like really boring, really dry. It's the same idea, right? Like if I was to watch a security awareness training video that was, you know, very broad made like 10 years ago or something like that, like, you know, whatever, but, um, or made with that kind of thought in mind, like where it's very dry, you know, even me who works in cybersecurity, you know, some of the trainings that I've seen and gone through are not that great, right? They're not engaging. They don't, um, they're just boring. Right. And of course, if you're not going to engage the employee, you're not going to, uh, get them to, you know, be involved, click things to actually respond. Yeah, of course they're not paying attention. They're tuned out. They're focused on other things. And if you allow it to just run, right? Like if you make a 30 minute video and it just runs, I mean, yeah, it's pretty easy to tune out <laughs> that kind of, you know, that kind of video, that kind of training. But, um, you know, employees are very crucial. You have to make sure that they are aware of their responsibilities, right? This is where having uh, role, um, role-based training, so training that is based on that individual's role and how they uh, integrate into the whole process is very important, right? Because they don't need to know uh, what you know, a cybersecurity professional is doing if they're in sales, right? They don't need to know that information. It's just, it's not relevant to their job uh, in a lot of cases, right? Like they're not going to need to know how to configure encryption on their, their system, right? It should be, uh, it should be enabled already. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, these numbers are pretty crazy. Uh, but, you know, even this one, like 85% of employees uh, participate in the programs, but 64% don't pay full attention. I'm not shocked right? So you just have to find a way to be very engaging. I would uh, ask your employees, you know, I would find those systems where you can track, you know, where they're watching, if they're rewinding, if they're doing knowledge checks, like all this stuff, you have to make it more engaging. Otherwise they're not going to pay attention. It's a waste of money, right? Like if, if you have 64% of employees not paying full attention, you know, is it worth all that money that you're investing in it? You probably should look at the program, right? And if it's even higher than that, then it's really not worth it. If it's like 80% aren't paying attention, it's not worth it at all. So I would highly recommend you, you focus a little bit more on your training programs. Let's see here. Spain flight delayed because of hacking of Apple's airdrop. A flight that was about to depart in, uh, to Rome was delayed for over two hours as a hacker sent daunting images and death threats to a few of the passengers through Apple's airdrops me airdrop messaging service. The incident took place on July 21st of this year when over 147 passengers, including, uh, excluding the staff, were on board a whaling flight. The passengers were left uh, terrified on seeing the disturbing images and text messages sent to them on Ethiopian Emmerich. And when, the, uh, when the, we translate the message, it gives a hint that the person receiving the message will suffer for his or her deeds and will be left alone in this world for actions. So, you know, think about this when you're creating protocols or ways to communicate with people, especially, you know, or just transferring data, right? Uh, there has to be some way 
to kind of vet the information. I mean, especially with like airdrop, you can make it so only your contacts can view that information or you can do it for everyone or you can have it off completely. And, you know, it's interesting to see some of these services that are created like airdrop that are supposed to make things more convenient, but then you always have people that are going to try to abuse it, right? Like airdrop is one of those things where if you have it on for everybody, you know, I or somebody else could just go send you random pictures, right? And there's prank YouTube videos, you know, all over the place of people doing this. I mean, they're probably somewhat fake. You know, let's be honest. A lot of those prank videos are fake. They're staged. Sorry to burst your bubble. But, um, you know, this is an example of how this does happen, right? And that can be a form of like hoaxing or uh, social engineering people and, you know, really taking advantage of that. So that was just an interesting kind of, uh, you know, article that wasn't necessarily, um, that wasn't necessarily part of, uh, the whole, you know, cybersecurity stuff, but it does, you know, it still is applicable. Uh, let's see here. All right. The, um, discovery of new Eufy rootkit exposes an ugly truth. The attacks are invisible to us. Researchers have unpacked a major cybersecurity find, a malicious Eufy-based rootkit used in the wild since 2016 to ensure computers remain infected, even if the operating system is reinstalled or the hard drive is completely replaced. The firmware compromises the Eufy, the low-level and highly opaque chain of firmware required to boot up nearly every modern computer. So this is kind of in the BIOS area, right? As a software that bridges a PC's device firmware and its operating system, the UFI, short for Unified Extensible Firmware Interface, is an OS on its own right. Uh, in its own right. It's located on an SPI-connected flash storage chip soldered onto the computer motherboard, making it difficult to inspect or patch the code uh, because it's the first thing to run when the computer is turned on. It influences the OS, security apps, and all the other software that follows. So the reason why I want to bring this up is because this does apply to the physical hardware. So if you're looking at vulnerabilities, right, typically the closer that you get to the hardware, the more uh, dangerous that vulnerability is. We've seen things with like Intel chips, their processors. We've seen things with BIOS. We've seen all these kind of very, um, very low level attacks, right, that are very close to the hardware. Because think about this. Uh, something like Windows Defender, right? That is in the operating system, that is in the software. Once it's in the software, it is much, um, you know, you can wipe the OS and then basically, you know, reinstall the entire OS and kind of get rid of some vulnerabilities that might exist in there. When it's in the hardware, it doesn't matter if you wipe the operating system, it's going to still be there. And so, you know, the more that attackers can affect that kind of hardware or at that level, you know, the more dangerous that it is. And I just bring that up because, you know, we don't always think about the priority of vulnerabilities. We should be, but we don't think about it in that context, right? We think about just, oh, I have this vulnerability. Okay, this is, you know, whatever, a high or critical. Um, but, you know, just in general, as you see vulnerabilities come out or issues come out, if it's closer to the hardware, it's automatically more critical, right? Like it's automatically more dangerous because it's not going to go away if you wipe that device. So I just want to bring that up because that is an interesting article and we don't always see hardware issues or hardware vulnerabilities. 
and or you know things that are that close to the hardware and it's important to keep that in mind so definitely an interesting article so again just a reminder i will be putting these articles up uh, if you're watching this live they're not up yet there is an article uh, already for this for the show notes for this but i will be putting up the uh, the articles and then if you're watching on replay they'll already be up and it'll be linked in the video description or in the show notes if you're listening on podcasting platform. Remember, make sure to leave a like and subscribe if you're uh, and a comment as well if you're on YouTube. And that way you don't miss future content. If you're listening on podcasting platforms, make sure to leave a review and uh, subscribe as well. Keep watching. I have a ton of great content that's still coming out and that's scheduled for a long time here. So what, I have a lot of stuff that I'm in uh, on, working on. And so there's just a ton more stuff that's going to be coming out, which I'm, I'm really excited about. It will help you in your career journey. If you're just starting, if you're already in this career field, you know, I aim to be a one-stop shop. So threat intelligence, interviews, training, career advice, all this stuff, we've got it all. So make sure that uh, you keep tracking the content. But again, this is your threat Intel briefing for uh, July 24th, 2022 through July 30th. 2022. If you're looking for this on podcasting platforms, it'll be under cybersecurity TLDR. Again, all the links are in the description if you're on YouTube and then all the show notes are on, uh, are on the, the, sh- uh, the description. If you're listening on podcasting platforms, Spotify, iTunes, all that stuff. But without, uh, with that, that is going to be, uh, the end of this stream. I want to thank you for joining and I will see you next time.